Last Sunday, we addressed, or we were addressed, rather, by God with the Tenth Commandment. And it said that we are not to be a covetous people. We're not to covet anything that our neighbor has. Coveting is wrong because it is wanting something that God has not given to us. And not being satisfied with what God has given us in the moment that he's given it. And as, we, as we've concluded these Ten Commandments, there is an issue that I think is, is ripe for discussion and is ripe for us to acknowledge before we move on. And that is an issue that stems from at least three of these Ten Commandments. And the issue is that of Christian generosity, Christian giving, worshiping God through giving to God, What is God's? And here's how I think it connects with the Ten Commandments. Regarding the commandment, you shall not steal. If you remember in that message, I said to not be a generous Christian, to not give back to God what he has given to us, a portion, is to steal from God. And as Christians, if we don't give back to God as he has called us to give back to God, we are stealing from God. That's A key point of that message that Sunday. Regarding the message on you shall not covet. I said that coveting is a gateway sin. It is a sin that we commit and it leads to a whole bunch of other sins that we thought were never imaginable. And you remember we looked at the example of David. He coveted his neighbor's wife. And through that sin of coveting, he became a murderer, an adulterer, a stealer. Uh, a liar, right? And it all began because he coveted. He was not satisfied with what God had given him. And guess what? He was the king of Israel. Should he not have been satisfied? Regarding the command, you shall have no other gods before me. We break this when we don't give back to God what is God's because we are actually making ourselves out to be God. And we're saying, I need to use my financial resources for me. And that is an anti-Christian stance to take. Because we understand from the Bible in Psalm 24, I think verse 1 says, everything in the whole world belongs to God. And everything God has given to us, he has given to us in trust. You and I are trust fund managers. We are. The money and the, uh, the assets that we have accumulated have been given to us by a sovereign God, entrusted to us. And this goes for everything. The wife God gave me has been entrusted to me. And we've talked on Wednesday night as men that our wives are not ours, first and foremost. They are God's, and he gave them to us to be good stewards with for a flicker of time in all of eternity. But there is no marriage in heaven. She is Jesus's for eternity if she believes in him. And the same with our children. We get our children for 18, maybe 22, maybe 25 years, and then they leave their father and mother and hold fast to their spouse. So we are managers of God's people, men. And then men and women, we are managers of God's money. We are trust fund managers. And when we don't give to God, it's because we've made ourselves to be God. And we are serving ourselves. And we've done that because we covet. And when we actually do that, we're stealing. There's three commandments we violated when we're not a giving people. So that's the platform that I'm standing upon this morning as I urge us to be a generous people, a people that with our financial resources, we demonstrate a faith, a robust faith in a mighty and good and giving God. I've said from this pulpit at least twice that I can remember in the last almost two years that if we are ever accused of loving God too much, probably the best way you can prove it is to go look at our financial bank accounts and credit card statements. If we're accused of loving God too much in the public court, and I pray that will never come to our society, but if we're dragged before the courts and they say, he's a lover of God and he loves God too much, and they say, well, get his bank accounts out and let's see, we'll see who he loves, 
our bank accounts are going to report to the courts, to the jury, to the judge. Yeah, look how generous he is to all these people. He, he gave all this money away or, nope, he spent every dime on himself. He didn't love God too much. He loves himself a whole bunch. Our financial statements really and truly project to God, because I don't know your bank statements, but God does. It projects to God what we think of him, who our God is, and how we take three of these Ten Commandments. And so we need to see how our giving or our lack of giving is embracing or defying the three commandments that I've put before you this morning. So that's what we're going to do here. And I want to start by doing something very interesting. You know, the Old Testament talks much about tithing. The word in the Bible is tithing. Long story short, tithing in Hebrew language means a tenth. And so we commonly say we need to give 10% of what God gives us, and God reserves the other 90% for us to use. And like I said, there's a lot of Old Testament scriptures that speak to this. But one in particular, just listen to Malachi chapter 3. It's the last, chap- last book in the Bible. Malachi 3, starting in uh, verse 8. God says through the prophet Malachi, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So God, right here, gets in the grill of the Israelites and says, Cursed are you because you're not giving to me. You're not tithing. Your contributions are nil. And then he says, I want to challenge you. You put me to the test. You get generous and you give, and I'll open the windows of heaven, and you will be blessed. And we've got to be careful. This is not a prosperity gospel. We got plenty of people in the world saying, if you give, you're going to get rich because God's going to give back to you. We're not talking about material blessings necessarily here. We're talking about being rich in the kingdom of God. Sometimes that includes material items and financial resources, and sometimes that's just an overabundance of joy and peace and worship because we love giving away rather than taking and receiving. So there's, there's a great Old Testament passage that shows you God's heart towards giving from his people. And he's, his focus is not giving to others, it's giving to him by giving within the confines of the nation of Israel. But then we go to the New Testament. And I'm going to tell you, I have scoured the New Testament. And, and I don't see in the New Testament a command like the Old Testament gives us to tithe. I don't see it. When we look into the New Testament, in fact, there are three places where tithing is even uttered. Tithing is uttered. One is Matthew 23, 23, where Jesus is talking to Pharisees and he pronounces woes on them. And listen to what he says. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weighty matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. We can hardly conclude from that that that's a command to tithe. He's pronouncing woes on Pharisees who do tithe, saying they've neglected all other aspects of the law and that tithing will not save them. We go to another passage. How about Luke eighteen twenty four? Luke 18, 24, we see this dialogue about a man, a Pharisee, 18, uh, Luke 18, starting in verse 12. Is that right? Yes, this Pharisee is all puffed up, and he says, I fast twice a week. 
I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now I skipped it. I should have taken us back up to verse 11. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector right here. And then he says, all puffed up, I fast twice a week and I give tithes. And Jesus says, yeah, and compared to this tax collector right here, the tax collector went down to his house justified, but the Pharisee was not. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So we can't take from here that there's a command from even Jesus to say, you must tithe, you must give 10% of your earnings. There's another obscure reference to tithing in Hebrews. Don't want to go there. Hebrews chapter 7, though, where Jesus is being compared to Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And Abraham gave a tenth of all that he had to Melchizedek, this mysterious character that really points us to Jesus Christ. You could look at that in Hebrews 7. Those are the only three instances in my New Testament that I see tithing referenced. Tithing. So we cannot conclude that the 10% tithe is a New Testament command. It's only seen in the Old Testament. Now, be careful, because we're Old Testament Christians and New Testament Christians. We're not only New Testament Christians. We're biblical Christians, and that means old and new. But why does the tithe, 10% concept, evaporate in the New Testament? I'm going to show you why. I want to show you why. Our main text this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I want you to turn there with me. Paul speaks very specifically to giving in this New Testament letter to a church, a body of believers that resides in Corinth. And he strongly encourages the Corinthians to be generous in giving to the ministry of the gospel. To the ministry of the gospel. And he does so by citing two very, very vivid and and expressive examples of generosity. And we're going to look at both of these examples this morning because I'm going to tell you that these two examples apply directly to you and me in 2014. Love this Bible. It never goes out of date. It never gets out of context. This This is an incredible gift from God that he can speak thousands of years ago in these words still. To the letter apply to us today. Man, that's exciting. When you read the Bible, you open it up. If you understand that this thing is is pertinent to today just like then, that ought to fire you up. And so I want us to look. Let's just start. We're going to look at the first two verses of 2 Corinthians 8. Paul's writing to this Corinthian church, and he says this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in, severe, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That is actually an amazing sentence. Slow down with me, church, and read that sentence. It's amazing. I, I see in this sentence a mathematical formula. I see God's Math. I don't see human math here. I see a mathematical formula that only comes from a sovereign and divine God. And I want you to look at it with me. We've put an insert into your bulletin that shows you this mathematical formula. I encourage you to pull that out, scratch a few notes down as they apply to you, or if you, as you hear what I say as I break this formula down, because it is an amazing math that does not make sense in the human mind. So let's break this down. Let's look at Paul's math. There's a severe test of affliction. Added to that, there's extreme poverty. And added to that, there's an abundance and a joy. And what that totals up to is an overflow in wealth and generosity. It's crazy math. It's biblical math. Watch it. First of all, these Macedonians, Paul is using the Macedonian churches. And by the way, those are the churches in Philippi, Thessalonica and Berea, okay? That's what we think, but Philippi, Thessalonica, and the Bereans. These are the Macedonian churches. 
And number one, Paul says, they have endured a severe test of affliction. What kind of affliction did they endure? Persecution for their faith. Hardship for believing in the name of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. The Philippian church is one of these Macedonian churches. Philippians 1, 29. Paul writes, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The Philippian church was persecuted. That's the, the affliction that Paul's writing to these Corinthians about. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4 and what the church in Thessalonica was enduring. Paul says, And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were suffering affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So these churches, these Macedonian churches in Philippi and Thessalonica endured affliction. That's the first piece to the formula of Paul's formula for Christian giving, affliction. Now, who in the moment of affliction wants to give generously. Sold out, authentic followers of Jesus Christ do. You'll see that. Number two, look at the next piece of the equation. In this affliction, they experienced poverty. Let me tell you, back in these days, and if we get to this point in our world, you go look in Iran, in China, in North Korea, in other places in the world where Christians are being afflicted and persecuted, you will never see a wealthy one. Because in their affliction and persecution, material assets are stripped off of them, and they're fined to death, and their, their breadwinner is thrown into prison, and so the wives and the children are poor because dad can't work anymore because he's in jail. So affliction always gives birth to poverty. Watch this. The persecution in the Philippians in the Thessalonians' experience resulted in tangible, material, and financial loss. This isn't pretty. Where in the world is generosity coming out of this equation? Where's it going to come from? They're poor and they're afflicted. They're discouraged. How in the world are they going to gladly give? Where is this going to come from? Look at the next piece of the formula. Through it all, they had an abundance of joy. This does not make sense. Severe affliction. Just look at, the, look at the words in this sentence. There's a severe test of affliction. There's extreme poverty. But then there's abundant joy and an overflow of generosity. Listen to this language. This is crazy, isn't it? This can only be in the Bible. Now, is the Bible crazy? Or is there something going on here? I'm going to tell you there's something going on here. So through it all, they have an abundance of joy. And we see this throughout the entire New Testament in the early church. Christians always in the Bible experience joy. And that joy has nothing to do with their circumstances. Nothing to do with their circumstances physically. It has everything to do with their spiritual circumstances. And their spiritual circumstances are founded upon a rock-solid relationship with Jesus Christ. And so those Christians overflow with an abundance of joy. I love this verse. Listen to Acts chapter 5, verse 41. This man, this is a beautiful verse that convicts me every time I read it. And then they left the presence of the council. This is the apostles. Peter, Paul, John. Okay, these are the apostles. Jesus has left. He's ascended to the right hand of God. They're going around proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. 
They're building and establishing churches. They're preaching and convicting Jewish people who are converting to Christianity. And they've been taken before a council, and they've been judged, and they've been throttled and thrashed, and they've been accused, and they've been just messed with. And their lives have been threatened. And here's what it says, Acts 5.41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing, (laughs) rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name, to suffer dishonor for the name. What's the name? Jesus Christ. They did not consider their physical circumstances. They were rejoicing because spiritually they were thriving, because they were being persecuted and they were suffering For the name above all names, Jesus Christ. And thus joy comes out of them. There's no woe is us. There's no man, I didn't sign up for this. There was like, yes, what an honor. We get to suffer for the name. And and why does that make sense? We get to identify with Jesus Christ who suffered just like this. He was dragged before the magistrates. He was accused falsely. He was whipped, beaten. He was crucified. I wasn't crucified. But I'm getting to be a little bit into the pattern of Jesus and his life on this earth. And that makes me happy because I now understand better what he's done for me. And it's a privilege to imitate him in this. That's where the joy came from. You and I were dragged down to Erath County Courthouse and accused of loving Jesus too much. We're going to be tempted to go, man, this is not working out so well. I don't know that I signed up for this. I just want to live quietly in my little house. No, I I didn't ask for all this. No, we've got to be, if that day ever comes, and I pray it doesn't, but we've got to be ready to walk out of that courthouse going, yes, in my persecution, I got to present the gospel. And there might be somebody there that gets saved because of that. And they will join me for all of eternity in the kingdom of heaven. These these apostles that rejoiced, these Macedonian Christians, I'm going to tell you the key is they were riveted on Jesus Christ and they understood that their life was but a mist, a vapor compared to all of eternity. And we as Christians have to have this eternal perspective on everything that happens to us. And we have to have an eternal perspective when it comes to giving. Because what we give is treasures that are stored up in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So these Macedonian Christians are like the apostles in that when they were persecuted and impoverished, they were joyful. I want to live like that. I hate living without joy. I hate it, and you do too. Every human wants to be joyful. But you know what? Really, we're pursuing happiness. And happiness is fleeting. There's a difference, and I don't have time to get into it, but happiness and joy are really two radically different things. Okay? We need joy. And we only get that by focusing on Christ. And not our circumstances. Yeah, the true Christian can have genuine joy in the midst of great persecution and personal suffering. And yes, even in the midst of poverty. Poverty. We can have joy. And the New Testament is full of these kinds of believers. Full of it. Now look at the... Look at the result of this weird math. Affliction plus poverty plus joy. What does it equal? In spite of all of those things, and because of joy, they were overflowing with a wealth of generosity. And this is why we need to be warned that we shouldn't covet Because a lot of times what we covet is peace. (laughs) We we covet things, but we covet peace as well. 
And because we covet it so much, we're willing to lay low and not step out there too broadly with the gospel and not be too generous with the checkbook. We just want to lay low and live quietly and everything's going to be all right. And we're coveting peace to the degree that we're not going to get peace. We all want joy, but we're trying to find it in the wrong places. So they were overflowing with a wealth of generosity, and the only thing that changed them to that was the joy part in their equation. If there's no joy, the affliction and the poverty is not going to equal generosity. That joy element changed the whole equation. Changed the whole equation. So here's the question. Here's what I asked myself all week. (laughs) Is my devotion to Christ so authentic that this formula is true in my life? I, I, I can tell you in little bitty ways I've suffered affliction lately for spiritual things. I am not impoverished, but I'm not independently wealthy either. And so I really get down to this third piece, this joy piece, and I'm going, Edward, where's the joy? And if the joy isn't there, then there's not enough Christ. We're going to have ladies go to a retreat at the end of this next month. And and this is what that retreat is addressing. Can you be joyful? Can you be content with what God has given you and because of that, overflow with an abundance of generosity? Next weekend, we're going to have men together with a whole bunch of other men, and we're going to try to see the king. And if we see the king rightly, (laughs) here comes joy. We're not joyful because we don't see the king for who he is all the way. And when we're not joyful, we need to understand, whoa, I've got a relationship problem with Jesus right this minute. If I'm not content, I've got a relationship problem with Jesus. Because if I'm all in with Jesus, I'm content and I'm joyful. I promise you that's how it works in Christianity. So it's really about who's our relation, how's our relationship with Jesus Christ. So is your devotion to Christ so authentic that Paul's Macedonian formula is true in your life and your family? Is Christ enough that you can be persecuted and impoverished and still be joyful and generous? If the answer is yes to that, what you have is an authentic sign that you are an authentic follower of the authentic Christ. And if that formula is not true for you, then you either don't know him or you're weak in your relationship with him and you've got news. You got to go get after it and you get after it by pursuing him and finding joy right here, not in the world. Let's continue in this passage in 2 Corinthians 8 because Paul shows us the extent of their generosity. Look at verses 3 through 5. Watch this. For they gave according to their means, verse 3, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Let's unpack that real quickly. Let's unpack that phrase, that sentence or two there. Number one, I've got four points here. Number one, they gave according to their means and beyond their means. Now remember, the Old Testament is called for a tithe, a ten percenter. There's no tithe language here. They gave according to their means. This is the New Testament formula for giving. It's according to their means, and it's a call to give beyond your means. And I'm going to tell you that if we're just ten percenters, 
then we're not faithful to the Lord. We're living by the wrong formula. The formula in New Testament and in the church age that we live in is to be overflowing with generosity, not capped at 10%. And I would tell you, this is another sermon for another time. I think the true Christian starts giving at 10%. Because if it was good enough for the Old Testament people that had not yet realized a resurrected Christ, then it's good enough for me who looks back at the resurrection and said, man, everything's taken care of. It was finished. Victory is here. And so the the true Christian starts at 10%. But then there's this concept that we see throughout the whole New Testament of people overflowing with generosity. That's what a Christian does. He does not get the calculator out and go, 40,000 times 0.10 is 4,000. Boom, there's my number. That's it. New Testament Christians, authentic Christians today, don't give with a calculator. They overflow because of joy in spite of their circumstances with generosity. Listen to Paul. He speaks to this further. Look down in verse 12. Love this. For if the readiness is there, Paul says they're ready. (laughs) If the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Boy, we've got to change our perspectives. I think we base our giving on what we have. I'm sorry, left out a key word. We base our giving based on what we don't have. We say, I don't have this, I can't give, because I've got to get that. It's coveting. We need to say, what has God given me? And based on what he's given me, how can I be generous? That's how Christians give. But too often, we're looking at what we don't have or, or the debt that we do have. And the things that we need to get, we need to pay for college and we need to mortgage and all this. And so I can't give right now. We're giving based on what we don't have. You see this? Our decisions are based on things we don't have. Instead, we need to say, wow, God has given me this. So I need to give according to my means. And my means are given to me by God. And how can I overflow and give beyond that like these Macedonians did? That's what we need to be asking as Christians. And that is worshiping God. I'll show you that here in a second. So by coveting and focusing on what we don't have, we are enticed to sin by not giving, which is stealing from God and violating the command, you shall not steal. And we're doing all that because we have put ourselves in the place of God. We have another God before him, ourselves. And we are determining what we need and what we don't need and what we will give away and what we will keep. It's a dangerous place to live. Giving is not a little optional deal whenever it fits into your circumstances. Giving needs to happen first before all the other stuff comes down. So let's look at the next phrase in here. He says, first, they gave to their means, and then they gave beyond their means. And second is this little four-word phrase at the end of verse 3. I love this phrase, of their own accord, of their own accord, by their own choosing. These Christians were not manipulated into giving by a strong in-your-face Paul. He was not browbeating them, picking up a basket and saying, come on, give, give. No, they did this on their own accord. They gave not because some man told them to. They gave because God told them to. If you're going to be obedient as a giver to God in this church or wherever, it must be because God, you're revering God in his call to this generosity, and you need to be doing it for him, not because some pastors or elders told you to give. This is really a very, very, very 
personal thing between you and God. And when I say this is a personal thing between you and God, it's not that it's none of our business. I'm not meaning that. This This is showing to God your reverence and your love and your worship of Him. It has nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with me. This is all about you and God. And you will never hear in this church a browbeating sermon about, you need to give, you need to give, you need to give. You're going to hear God says, you need to worship, you need to worship, you need to worship. And one of those ways is singing, one of those ways is preaching, one of those ways is listening, one of those ways is serving, and one of those ways is giving. Giving. So they gave of their own accord. It was giving from a generous heart that was genuine towards God. Paul didn't command them to give. You know what he did? (laughs) He invited them to give. And I'll do that. I'll stand in this pulpit and I'll invite you. I do. I invite you to a lot of things about God. I invite you to worship Him by listening to these sermons. The team invites us to love on God by singing. That's what church leadership is. I invite men to be sold out for Jesus Christ on Wednesday night right here when we teach. We need to invite our children in Sunday school to love Jesus Christ. And there's a time where Paul invited the Macedonians in in. I and Paul invites us, and I'm being the mouthpiece this morning. There's an invitation here to love God by giving generously to His kingdom. He did this as their spiritual leader. And I would say to you this morning that you need to come to the topic of giving From the perspective that this is about my relationship with you, Lord. Not my relationship with necessarily the church. Look down in chapter 9, verse 7. Just right there on the same page, probably. Paul says this. Basically, by the way, chapter 8 and 9 is all about the Corinthian church giving generously. Okay, This is two big-time chapters on the concept of Christian giving. In verse 7 of chapter 9... Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Okay? So look at this. This is God looking into your life of giving. This is between you and him. And God wants you to be joyful, that third piece of the equation of the Macedonian math. He wants you to be joyful when you overflow with abundance. This is really about you and God. And I hope you see the brevity, of the, 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 uh, the, the strength of this issue. Now, let's look at the next phrase. Verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 8. They were begging Paul earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Here's why they wanted to give. They wanted to relieve the saints. Saints, fellow believers. Saints were being persecuted just like them and afflicted. Saints were poor just like they were poor. And they wanted to relieve them of the condition that they themselves were in. Wow. That's generous giving. That's authentic Christianity saying, I'm afflicted, I'm poor. They're afflicted, they're poor. I want to give to them so that they won't be afflicted and poor. That's Christianity. And we need to find ourselves living like that. You know, we are able to provide relief for the saints. You understand that we fund a lot of missionaries on all corners of this planet? And some of them are afflicted with no insurance, with a shortage of funds. They're living in grass huts. Some of them are hiding out because they don't want to be discovered. They don't know how they're going to make ends meet. 
They've got a disease they're trying to battle. They need money for health care in a foreign country. And we have an opportunity as a church to provide relief to some saints around the world. So when we pass these baskets, very little of the money that we're spending is going towards paying for air conditioning and lighting. We're shipping a lot of money to a lot of saints that need relief. Are you like the Macedonians? Do you want to be part of the solution of God's to provide relief to the saints? You know, even in our local context, we have opportunities right here in our very midst to provide relief to the saints. We have a thriving benevolence ministry in this church. It's 100% funded by our church body. And we have saints, believers in Jesus Christ, that are in our midst that need relief when refrigerators break, when an unexpected illness comes on with no insurance. Do you understand that we have saints in our midst that are, that are really anxious about going to a women's retreat because it costs 50 bucks? I urge you to want to provide relief to those saintly ladies and say, hey, church, I got, I got some abundance here. Don't need my name to it. Put this in a fund. And any lady that can't go on the retreat, you dip into this money and let them go. We've got men that can't really go next week or won't go in peace because they're saying that was 60 bucks and I'm paycheck to paycheck and what am I going to cut? I don't know where else to cut. Man, I'd love it if our church wanted to provide relief to these saints and say, hey, I've been blessed with abundance. I'm going to give beyond my means. Here's some money. You tell any man or any woman that can't go to retreat, you're covered. And I'm going to tell you, I've had two men come to me in the last week and a half and say that. We need more. We got kids camp this summer. There's a lot of money involved in going to kids camp. We got mission trips for youth. You got a lot of different things that people struggle to go to. And you know what I've said often up here? No woman left behind. No man left behind. You will not not go to one of these events because you can't afford it. I'm going to say you can't afford not to go. And let's provide relief for the saints so that this is not a financial issue that would keep them from going. And let me tell you, the enemy that we're against does not want our women content. The enemy that we're against does not want our men to see the king, Jesus, as he rightly is. And so he will use financial handcuffs to prevent them from going. Would you overflow with generosity by providing relief to these saints? Man, I pray you would. Because the kingdom is being advanced. And that truly is storing up treasures in heaven. Look at the next one, last one. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That is the perspective that we need to be having when we give. God, this is to you. And you've called me to be in the context of Rocky Point Baptist Church, and so I'm giving to you through this conduit. Would you bless this in the furthering of your kingdom right here? And you may give outside of this church to your own mission person that you've got a connection with or your own organization that's advancing the gospel. Wonderful. But it's got to be given to God first, not so that you gain salvation, but so that you show your salvation. Not so that you get the relationship, so you, 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 you uh, image the relationship. Not so that you're doing a task, but that you're worshiping him who gave you everything. So that's a critical order. He gave to the Lord first and then by the will of God to us being Paul. And this was worshipful giving to God, not expecting something in return one day from God or man. This was just giving unto the Lord. All right, let's look at the second example and then we'll land this airplane. The second example is found in verse 9. So skip down to verse 9, 2 Corinthians 8. And it says this, 
For you know, so let me set it up. The first example is the Macedonian Christians. The second example right here. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. There's some funny math there too. I didn't draw the equation out for you. But rich Jesus becomes poor Jesus so that you become rich. That's what the formula looks like. And let's just look at this for a moment. This is a supreme example, by the way, to the Macedonian church example. Because we don't want to do things just because another church is doing it that way. Although we look into that church and we see that the church is doing what we're about to see, the pur- for, for which the purpose that we're about to see is why we need to do this. That was a really confusing sentence. I don't even know what that meant. The Macedonians were generous because of what we're going to see right here. And we need to be generous, not because the Macedonians were generous, but because we see this like the Macedonians saw it. I think that's clear. You with me? I like that better. So here we go. Jesus was rich. And I just want you to listen. You know this verse well. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Be like Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. No, he let go. He is God. He is the form of God. He is equal to God. He's rich. And he didn't clutch to it and say, no, I'm not giving that up. No, this is mine. He said, I'm going to give that up. And I'm going to take on human flesh. And I'm going to become real poor. Yeah, physically poor. He didn't have a place to lay his head down, right? He didn't carry a refrigerator around on wheels and dip into it and get Dr. Pepper out. He had no idea where the next meal was coming. He had no idea where he was going to lay his head down that night. Was it indoors or was it outdoors? He had no idea. He became poor physically, but it's bigger than that. Because our Christ became spiritually poor to the point, or, or, or ultimately physically poor to the point of dying. He became bankrupt because he gave up his life. That's being poor. He's equal to God. He's in the form of God. And now he's a man. And now he's dead. From rich to poor. And Jesus Christ did that for our sake so that if we believe in that, we become rich spiritually. And rich means we live forever in the presence of Jesus Christ for all of eternity. Every person will live forever, heaven or hell. We will live forever rich in the presence of Christ, not poor, separated from Christ. So Christ's sacrifice of self is the model by which all Christian sacrifice should be lived out, including how we dole out the financial resources that God's given us. Last thing I'll say on that is Jesus was joyful in his becoming poor. That's a key element in the formula that I've put in your your bulletin. Listen to this, Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You see, there's joy in Christ's poverty and affliction that overflows in a generous abundance of giving because he gave abundantly eternal life to us if we would only believe in him. So there's the model for Christian generosity, Christ himself. And there's a Macedonian church that got it and that lived it out. And Paul tells the Corinthians, and Paul tells the Rocky Pointans, Pointians, Rocky Point people, be generous like the Macedonians, be generous like Jesus Christ. So I urge you this morning, look at your giving. Provide relief for the saints. In spite of your poverty and affliction, if you've got it, do it joyfully and do it abundantly. So that your relationship with Jesus Christ will be authenticated and it will thrive. So what are we to do with the question of tithing and giving to the Lord? We are to understand that all of our money is God's. All of it. 
And we have been entrusted with a trust fund from him. And we all manage different sizes of trust funds. But we all have the same responsibility to be generous and to dole it out in ways that will advance his agenda and his kingdom and his will. And I will tell you that God will see to it in the midst of faithful giving that every one of us will be faithfully provided for. I've never, and and you, you bring it to me, I've never seen a Christian be financially generous unmercifully and not be provided for. Never seen it. Test the Lord. He will open the windows of heaven to you for generosity. Just be careful about how you define those open windows. It doesn't mean boats and cars and three houses and square footage. Okay? Might, but it's not a guarantee. So are we to tithe? Mm -mm. We're to be generous. And I think generosity comes after 10%. We're to give beyond our means as an act of worship of the living God. Father, we, we come before you this morning having heard from you about why we are to be generous. And that reason is that you have been most generous with us. We thank you, Father, that Jesus was rich but made himself poor, that we might become rich. And I pray those here this morning that believe in Jesus Christ will bask in the wealth that they have that is called eternal life and forgiveness for sins. I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know Jesus Christ, that they would feel the poverty that they're living in. That they would feel bankrupt. And that they would see that Wealth, riches, spiritually speaking, wait for them through a profession of faith in Jesus Christ who died as a substitute for them on the cross and rose and defeated sin and death forever on the third day. Father, I pray that there would be no one that would leave this service this morning not basking in that wealth of eternal life. So in these next few moments... In the heart of your people, your Christians, would you remind them of how eternally wealthy they are? Would you call them to be generous in an abundant way out of joy? And for the one that doesn't believe here this morning, would you call them and invite them to accept Jesus and live an abundant life for all of eternity? We thank you for this morning of worship, and I pray that you'd continue to lead us now through these next short moments. And you'd send us out of here loving you all the more. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, made himself poor for our behalf. Amen.